Open your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, we're going to begin reading with verse 13. A brief account about Jesus blessing the children. We're also going to look at the first portion of Jesus' interaction with the man that we speak of as the rich young ruler. So Matthew 19 verse 13 through verse 22. The text says this, Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And laying his hands on them, he departed from there. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit a murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what am I still lacking? And Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, and some of your versions have the word perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Difficult to know where to break some of the purposes of preaching. Lord willing, in the future, we want to finish this account of the ruler from 23 on. But children were coming to Jesus. Children were coming to Jesus so that Jesus would bless them. You may remember Jesus himself was the recipient of that kind of thing when he was an infant. You remember Simeon took him in his arms and blessed him in Luke 2 verse 28. And now Jesus is the one to whom they are bringing their children and he is laying his hands on them and praying for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Doesn't it seem like they have forgotten the lesson of Matthew 18.5 really quickly? Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, Jesus had said. 
And they're already forgetting this kind of instruction. And now they are rebuking those who are bringing their little ones to Jesus. Mark 10, 14 adds the note here that Jesus became indignant at this. Jesus manifests his anger at this occasion. And he said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Now, we have pointed out before in a passage like Matthew 18 verses 1 through 5 that the New Testament knows of the shortcomings of children. We are told not to be like children, but to grow up and to be a mature man. No more tossed here and fro by every wave of doctrine in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 13 in context. But while they have failures, they are dependent upon the one who guides them. And the Bible says the kingdom of heaven, which is such a prominent subject in this section. Look at verse 12. It talks about some who were eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In verse 23, the phrase will be used again. And in verse 24, Matthew has one of his only four instances of using the term kingdom of God. But that is prominent in this discussion. But, but these children, it's people like them who are the types that receive, respond to and receive the message of God's kingdom. They are the ones who are welcoming that message with a sense of trust and reliance and dependence upon God. Do we have that sense of dependence? Jesus lays his hands on them and they depart. Are we children in the sense of Jeremiah 10 verse 23? Oh Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his steps. We don't know the right way to go and the right thing to do. And we depend upon Him and rely upon Him totally. Are we like little children? Now, how can we hinder the children? This, this passage tells us, do not hinder the children from coming to me. In Matthew 19, verses 3 through 12, Jesus was asked, Is it lawful to divorce your wife for any reason at all? And that discussion of divorce leads to this discussion of children in verses 13 through 15. Now, I know what I'm about to say is going to be difficult to hear. For those of you who 
have made vows that you would be faithful till death do you part. And you kept your part and someone else didn't. I recognize that. But I want to tell you, keeping your marriage together is going to have a profound impact on whether or not your children are loyal to Christ. And one of the best things those of us who are married can do to ensure the spiritual stability of our children is to remain married and not only remain married, but to demonstrate what Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 tell us to demonstrate through marriage. A person older than I am, a person who is about as well adjusted as anyone that I would know. And there would be some of you who would know the name if I would call it out, which I'm not. But he has stated the profound impact that his parents' divorce had upon him. A divorce could happen after he left the house. Being faithful and staying together is one of the best things you can do as a lesson to little children. Continuing in that frame, I remember a discussion a couple of people had with me on Friday night some 20 years ago. They were both faithful Christians to acknowledge that in some of their early years, they had been much more lukewarm than they should have been. They were talking about how their children became unfaithful. And they were just pouring out their feelings about some mistakes they made. And both of them said this. They said one of the greatest mistakes we made when our children were young is we... We, we would carry them to Bible study and we would drop them off and, and they were there and then we would come back in later for worship. Not giving the example that we were involved in that process as well. And both of them highly regretted that. But I would say to go beyond that, that we have to teach our children the ways of God. In Psalm 78 the other night, we were talking about, and Lord willing, plan to cover the rest of this coming Tuesday night. But in Psalm 78, in those first eight verses, it was so important that one generation teach another generation the ways of God. It is not primarily the responsibility of the public to teach knowledge about God, which they're not going to do. 
anyway. It is not primarily the responsibility of the local congregation to do. It is primarily the responsibility of each of each of us as individuals to teach our children, to train them. Now we want all the help we can get from the local congregation in that particular regard. But we need to be talking about the word when we sit down and when we rise up as Deuteronomy chapter 6 calls us to do. So much could be said about that. But make Christ the center of your household. The next discussion starts out like it's going to go great places. Here we find a man that we call the rich young ruler. He's called young in Matthew's account in verse 20 and in verse 22. He is called a ruler in Luke's account. And he's shown to be rich in all of the accounts. But it's interesting to see how hopeful this is when it begins. Because Mark 10 verse 17 says this man was running to Jesus. He was running to Jesus. You don't find many people running in the New Testament. You find the father of the prodigal running to greet him in Luke 15 verse 20. You find Philip running to teach the eunuch in Acts 8. But here is a person who is in need of spiritual guidance and he is running to Jesus. He is running to Jesus and the text tells us he is bowing before him. Now, last time when we studied in Matthew, in Matthew 19, in verse 3, we find that some asked Jesus the question about divorce, but we are specifically told that they asked that question testing him. They're not interested in his answer, except as they can use it against Jesus somehow. They were testing him. There is a lawyer in Luke 10 verse 25, who asked a question much like this rich young ruler. But he also asked that question tempting Jesus or testing Jesus. But there's nothing about that as a motive for this man. As a matter of fact, he is running to Jesus and he is bowing before him. The account in Mark 10 verse 17 says, And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran to him and knelt before him. He is running to the right source with a good question. What shall I do to inherit, obtain eternal life? What good thing can I do to obtain eternal life? Now, in Mark and Luke, the emphasis is on good teaching. But Jesus will object to that particular word, good. Was the man thinking he could do one thing so great he would earn salvation? Jesus doesn't object to his use of the word do. Jesus objects to his use of the word good. Whether he says good teacher or what good thing must I do, he said, there's, there's no one good but God. 
someone good but God. Now, Jesus is not, in Mark and Luke, denying that He is God. Nor do I even think it's a subtle argument in this particular place for His deity. I think Jesus is trying to get Him to realize that the term good is overused in this particular way particularly as we think of our salvation. Suppose you were at a family reunion and you decide that family reunion you're going to have a softball game or a baseball game. And all the family is just mesmerized about how good you are. So you see that a professional baseball team is having a tryout in your area and they give open invitations and you go. Is the standard of what is good going to be the same at those tryouts for a professional baseball team as they would be at a family It is easy for us to think we're good when the standard is looking around us. I can look at the news and I can feel great about who I am and how I've got a handle on my life because I can see examples of people doing all kinds of hideous things. I can even look around closer to that of neighbors who don't get up and go to services on Sunday morning and who don't do other things. And I can feel good about myself. But when the standard is God, the picture totally changes, doesn't it? There's none good but God. In the midst of His blinding holiness, every spot and every stain is revealed. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 6, when he saw the Lord proclaim, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His only response in speaking of himself is, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Did this man have a profound enough significant a grasp of his sin and his desperate need of God? Maybe not. And maybe we don't either. A profound sense of how desperately we need His forgiveness. But Jesus said, you know the commandments. He says, which one? And He begins quoting from the sixth to the ninth command. Quote to the sixth to the ninth command. 
He says you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Then he goes back to the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, and adds a statement from Leviticus 19 verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. It's very interesting that the methods of Jesus in teaching are often reflected in the epistles as well. You see five commandments quoted and an inclusion of that commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul in Romans chapter 13 verse 9 gives four commandments and the inclusion of this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus presents him with these commandments. It's interesting which commandments he doesn't mention. He doesn't mention the first four. He doesn't mention the tenth commandment about not coveting either. But he deals with these commandments that deal with our relationship to our fellow man. And I think the young man is sincere when he says, All these I have kept from my youth up. Now, you might say he's sincere, but is he self-righteous? I could understand that question coming up, particularly in Luke's account, because this is in Luke 18, where you see the Pharisee praying, God, I thank you, I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get. I can understand that coming up. But we cannot take any affirmation of obedience in the Bible or any statement of innocence as a statement of self-righteousness. As a matter of fact, there are passages in Scripture where God tell, told His people to make affirmations of innocence. For example, in Deuteronomy 26, when the people were bringing their first fruits to God, they were to bring their first fruits, telling the story of all that God had done for their people. And as they told the story of what God had done, they also made the acknowledgement that there are certain things they hadn't, hadn't done. In verse, in verse 13, verse 14 of, of Deuteronomy 26, they haven't eaten this food in mourning. They haven't removed any of it while it was unclean. They haven't offered it to the dead. And, and then they were to say, I have not transgressed or forgotten any of your commandments. And we see Job's affirmation of innocence in Job 31. And I want to tell you, I realized how sometimes we may be quick to attribute everything to self-righteousness. When years ago in a class on Job was asking the class, how they would summarize Job's affirmation of innocence in Job 31. And they say self-righteousness. That's not the point in context. Because the whole book agrees with his assessment of himself. But I will say this. If he has kept commandments... Five through nine. He hasn't kept commandment number ten. 
He did not realize the depth of his sin at that point. And Jesus said, if you will be complete or perfect, I would suggest whatever translation you have, just look up different ways that word is used in the New Testament. Sometimes we look at that as being perfectly sinless. Only one time in the New Testament could possibly that definition fit in James 3 verse 2. But that's not the way the term is used. The term is used in the sense of maturity, of completion, being a full-grown disciple. That's the way the term is used. If you wish to be complete, if you wish to be perfect, if you wish to be a mature disciple, he gives five imperatives. Go and sell your possessions. Give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Jesus looked into his heart. And Jesus saw what this man's biggest need was. And just as Israel, when they came into the land of Canaan, took the idols of the foreign nations and smashed them and destroyed them, Jesus is trying to smash this man's idol here. Go, sell your possessions, Give it away. It doesn't stop there. The whole picture is that you must come and follow me. For a person may give their body to be burned and give all they have to the poor in 1 Corinthians. 13.3, and not have love. It must be done to follow him, to be his disciple, to walk in his path. Jesus didn't say the exact same thing to Zacchaeus. He didn't... Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man and, had a, and was a disciple. But this man has a particular problem and Jesus tells him to get rid of this. In so many ways in life, money opens doors. It opens doors. And even the book of Proverbs acknowledges this. In Proverbs 14 verse 20, the poor is hated even by his neighbor, but those who love the rich are many. Proverbs 14 20. In Proverbs 19 in verse 4, wealth adds many friends, but a poor man is separated from his friend. 
It may be even significant that the term friends is used plural for the rich man. Wealth adds many friends, but the word friend is used singular for the poor man. The poor man is separated from his friend. Wealth opens doors. But sometimes, wealth closes hearts too. It closes hearts. And it did with this young man. If we, with the houses we live in, houses we live in, with the luxuries we enjoy, were transported to this world, We might be described in that world as owning much property or having many possessions. And while I haven't taken these words to refer to every disciple in the exact same way, these are words that refer to every disciple. And his conversation leaves him sad. And it leaves Jesus sad too. They're, they're both saddened by the occasion. It is such a contrast to Matthew 13 where a man found a treasure hidden in a field and he found it and for joy over it he sells all he has and buys that field. Or one who found a great pearl, one pearl of great value, and he went and sold all he had. That man was overjoyed because he found one possession that was greater than all possessions, and he was willing to sacrifice all in order to obtain it. I think this man knows what is more valuable than anything else. He knows it's eternal life. He knows that he's lacking something. And Jesus looked at him, the text says, in Mark 10 and verse 21, and loved him. Jesus' strict requirement of him was not out of trying to run him away it was out of love he looked at him and he loved him and he said if you wish to be complete sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me isn't it striking that children are often more receptive to the message of the kingdom than rulers. This, this young ruler had a lot going for him in that he was willing to run to Jesus. He was willing to bow before him. He was asking the ultimate question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But ultimately, the demands were more than he wanted to give. While on the other hand, the children are humble. 
and dependent. The least likely are often going to respect or accept the message. And those we think are most qualified are often going to turn away. But Jesus, out of his love for this man, challenges him with these profound words. He looked at him and he loved him. It was love that led Jesus to say, if any man will be my disciple, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. But I'm going to ask you this. We are 2,000 years on this side of that man's encounter with Christ. How does his decision look now? How does his decision look now? He is asking about eternal life. In verse 16, in verse 29, Jesus will come back to this subject and use the term eternal life. He's asking about something that doesn't wear out. He is talking about something that never grows old. He is asking about eternal life. And he gives up his pursuit in grief and sadness. Because of his temporary riches. Years ago, I was in a class. I don't remember if this was a revelation class and it was used and connected to the class because of the seven churches of Asia or if it was a class about archaeology. I don't remember exactly why, but the teacher showed a documentary about Mount Vesuvius. Mount Vesuvius erupted in 79 AD and uh, it was buried in volcanic ash. And the amazing thing about Vesuvius was the same volcanic ash that destroyed the city also preserved the city. And so the city was pretty much intact when archaeologists went to study it, pretty much as it was that day in 79 AD. They had determined that there was a series of volcanic blasts and volcanic ash that had come over the city. Some of them were already forming, there was lava already forming. And yet not everyone was killed instantaneously. But someone rode in that lava after the doom of the city seemed certain. Someone 
in this prosperous, successful, secular city, wrote these words. Nothing on earth lasts forever. young ruler held on to what was temporary and fleeting and abandoned his quest for what is eternal. What do you pursue in your life? When you come to the crossroads of life, what choice you may. It may be that you're already a Christian and you need to be strengthened just in your commitment to that which is eternal, to eternal life. You need to be strengthened in your commitment to that. But it may be that you are not a Christian and you are wondering, what, what am I going to pursue? What am I going to seek? What am I going to make my lifetime goal? Where will you turn the crossroads of life? I want to tell you, anything but Him, anything but Jesus is going to have an expiration date. Even the best of marriages are till death do you part. But He offers eternal life. What shall I do that I may have eternal life? That question was in effect asked in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. As they, had convict, as they were convicted of crucifying Jesus. And, and Peter said, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. If we can assist you in doing that today, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.